From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Today on The Surgery Set, my guests are doctors Heather Logie and Susan Pitt, two of the powerhouse surgeons behind the Women in Surgery movement. One year ago, the New Yorker magazine cover featured an illustration of four surgeons looking down at a patient in the operating room. UW assistant professor of surgery, Dr. Susan Pitt, was inspired by the cover art to create her own version with female colleagues. That became the New Yorker OR cover challenge, which has created viral images of women surgeons across the world. Dr. Pitt was building on the work of Dr. Heather Logie, who was one of the founders of the I Look Like a Surgeon phenomenon on social media, showing that you don't have to look a certain way or be a particular type of person to be a surgeon. Dr. Pitt is an endocrine surgeon here at the University of Wisconsin Hospital. She specializes in treating benign and malignant diseases of the thyroid, parathyroid, and adrenal glands. Beyond being a social media maven, she's a highly successful health services and surgical outcomes researcher with a focus on shared decision-making in surgery. Dr. Heather Logie attended medical school at UCSF and is now a general surgery resident interested in the intersections of surgery, health, healing, and technology. She's a research fellow at Thomas Jefferson University. Appropriately, they both joined me remotely by computer. Dr. Logie and Dr. Pitt, welcome to the surgery set. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, uh, both of you remotely today. Of course, thank you. Thank you. And um, Dr. Logie, uh, we'll start with you. You're, uh, you're coming to us from Nevada. Really just a great pleasure to have, uh, have you here. You are a Badger, as I understand it. Yes, undergrad. And then from there to uh, UNC for a couple years of residency and now doing a remote fellowships through Jefferson. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, so I met my mentor, Rahesh Agarwal, in part through the I Look Like a Surgeon movement. We're doing some research on social media and surgery and how it pertains to surgical education and patient care. And I meet with him once a month. We communicate via email and social media. Yeah, you're sort of, you're living your topic. Very cool. And Dr. Pitt, you're joining us from across town at the American Center? Exactly. I'm just across town, which is, uh, you can think of it as a benefit or as a a downside, depending upon which you like. But the facility here is awesome, but uh, it's not on the main campus. Feels so appropriate to be having this conversation on the computer somehow, because this is all, both of you are such pioneers at thinking about how surgeons can get together outside of the physical interaction and actually be um, on opposite sides of the country, but, but talking about the same thing and doing the same thing. Dr. Logie, like, let's start with you. You are sort of the originator of the surgical presence on Twitter for, I wouldn't say you're like, you're not the first surgeon to be on Twitter, but you're, you're, you're the first to sort of start a movement on Twitter, I think, for surgeons, right? Yes, you could probably say that. Just tell us about like the day that this started, right? Because hashtag I look like a surgeon now feels like it's been out there forever. But there was like one day it wasn't there. And then, then the next day you came up with it. Like what, what was it that prompted this the effort? Yeah, so it was early August 2015. And there was a woman in California who was an engineer. And she's been frustrated after a billboard was created by her company looking for employees. And there was her picture on it. 
and she was quoted and then her friend started sending her Facebook images of people talking about her on Facebook, questioning whether she really was an engineer because she quote didn't look like an engineer. And she started the I look like an engineer hashtag and there were many articles on it. And a friend in residency sent me a text message and said, hey, why don't we do I look like a surgeon? And at the time there were a few um, t-shirts saying this is what a surgeon looks like, this is what an anesthesiology, anesthesiologist looks like, and Nikki Stamp had been one of the women surgeons that had promoted those. So initially I was thinking it already existed and then I, I googled and realized that specifically that hashtag didn't. I put forth a link to the I look like an engineer article and said hey guys you know, do you think I look like a surgeon should be next? But I got a response from Chicago, a woman responded in Ireland and said yes and the woman in Ireland tweeted her photo. I tweeted my photo, and as a bit of backstory, I had actually just finished my second prelim year at UNC and was currently looking for a categorical position. So I put my picture out there, and then a few hours later, though, I got subconscious and realized, you know, thought about, wow, I, I don't technically have a position right now. And I took my photo down, and another woman in Chicago tweeted a picture of herself, and a friend encouraged me to write a blog post. So I stayed up for a few hours, wrote, actually until five in the morning, wrote the blog post, posted my picture back up, decided, well, the hashtag isn't I am a surgeon, it's more declaring that anyone can be a surgeon. And so saying this is what a surgeon looks like um, is actually fair. And went to sleep at 5.30 in the morning, I believe. And a few hours later, woke up and realized that Columbia Surgery had posted a beautiful spread of their female faculty. And so I started retweeting. A good friend, Kathy Hughes, had said she would help boost, and she also was retweeting. And then Marissa Beck, surgeon, surgery resident, also was retweeting. And we just started retweeting and retweeting all the posts that came up. And when you say retweeting and retweeting, like you're talking a lot of time, right? Yeah. So I sat at my computer and kept clicking retweet. There also was a lot of strategizing that happened. So there were a lot of direct messages with people like Ed Fitzgerald from the United Kingdom. Alison McCrubery was a woman in Ireland with Marissa trying to decide what to do with all of this positive energy and where to go next. And we created a series of blog posts, a lot of them that were invited to try to shape what we envisioned for the hashtag. So there were, there were, there were a fair amount of behind the scenes conversations on top of the retweeting. And in those early days, I found myself really only sleeping when the sun was over Asia. <laughs> there are not a lot of people tweeting from Asia, but otherwise the images just kept coming. And we found that there are a lot of people that were perhaps opening a Twitter account for the first time to tweet because there were people prompting them to tweet their image or there were people that had had Twitter accounts but had never tweeted that were tweeting. And it was really important to me that they felt heard because if they put that picture out there and nothing happened, they'd probably be done with Twitter, but they wanted to you know, put that out there and feel heard. And then the media interviews started coming in as well, which, is a bit nerve-wracking because for most of people, for most people in medicine and surgery, you don't have training in that. So that was really interesting and exciting at the same time. And we also did a lot of 
actually was prompting people to tweet photos. So it wasn't that everyone organically put their images out there, but oftentimes we would have to, we had to directly solicit people to tweet images and particularly to the inclusive of the men. For example, there was a man, Chris Porter, who's a surgeon who was particularly influential in Twitter going back to 2011. And I asked him to write a blog post and initially he said, what, you know, I'm a white man in surgery. Isn't this exactly what this campaign is not about? And, and I said, no, it, it's about all of us and representing what the profession means to those who are in it and those who want to be a part of it. And he put forth a blog that I never would have expected, which was about his experience being a divorced dad who at times was a sole caretaker of his three-year-old daughter and what that was like on a surgery schedule and the challenges that he faced. And it was very powerful. There was also an unsolicited blog post by a patient where she talked about how much she admired the women and men putting forth images of themselves outside of the operating room and who they were and how she felt that those are the surgeons that she would want for herself because she felt like they would value, you know, shared decision-making and the holistic patient. So that was going on three years ago and that was starting with some Twitter. And then what was the blog that you were, were working off of or like, is that? Yeah, I had my own blog that I'd written on intermittently called allies for health. And so the blog that I wrote to kick it off and kind of add meaning to it, I posted on that blog. And then, you know, Ed Fitzgerald, a surgeon in the United Kingdom, put forth kind of a call to men to participate. And Chris Porter wrote his blog. Um, and that was just on his personal blog that then were sort of- Well, actually they, they sent them to me and I posted okay. them. Yeah. And so actually another part of the team effort was that for these blog posts that we invited people to write, there was an impromptu team of, five to seven people that were voluntarily putting forth their time to edit and make these blog posts better. Yeah. And oftentimes what we found is that someone would write a blog post and they would think it was done and it, it wasn't very impactful. And I would actually ask them to what, to read a blog post by Dr. Amalia Cochran on being vulnerable. And after they would read that, then they would, they would end up coming back with something that was so much more powerful because it was more a part of their real selves. So another example of an invited blog post was one on issues of LGBT um, people in surgery. So we tried to you know, span a broad array of topics. So does that blog still exist? I, I hadn't realized that this existed off of Twitter, but there's like there's a longer text version of, of this movement. Right. Also, Kathy Hughes started a Facebook version of the I Look Like a Surgeon community as well. Wow. And I think that is a misconception of a lot of people with Twitter, particularly when it was 140 characters, everyone says, well, what can you say in 140 characters? But it's usually more that it's 140 characters to sell or entice people to read something longer. Yeah. Or show, in, in your case, a lot of pictures of people yes. who look like all sorts of different kinds of surgeons. Yeah. Yeah. And we did hear early on from so many med you know, women and particularly minority women who had never seen such diverse images of people in surgery. You know, there were quotes of them literally saying that the hashtag like gives them life and yeah. gives them hope for their own careers. So amazing. And then flash forward to almost exactly a year ago now, and Dr. Pitt immersed in the I have a or I look like a surgeon movement or aware of it at least, like you, you took it to another level. 
what I did um, revolved around, you know, a particular uh, magazine cover from the New Yorker, but I'm pulled it up here in my office. I actually, my very first tweet about it uh, has hashtag I look like a surgeon on it and tagged uh, Heather and um, as well as Marissa Bach, um, the resident she mentioned uh, from Columbia University. And when this happened, you know, the cover is, you know, a group of women in the OR with masks on representing what the artist uh, Malika Farb saw when she was going to sleep as a young child. And she was asked to do the cover for the healthcare issue. Um, and that's what she came up with. And I'm a very artistic person. And so as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, I have to redo this. I was um, about to leave for the American Association of Endocrine Surgeons meeting. And so I wasn't going to be in the OR for like a week. And I uh, went and uh, took a picture without the masks with a few of the women at the meeting and tweeted that out. Marissa from Columbia, she actually responded almost uh, right away, just saying, this is awesome. And I responded back, I challenge you to do one. And that's sort of how it got started. And she posted the first one after that. And oddly enough, the second one came from Saudi Arabia. Hmm. When I realized the power of Twitter, I was like, oh my, Um, and then a few more from other programs. But it took almost a week for it to truly go viral. And so that took a lot of me tweeting around the clock at people, um, using Facebook to help kind of disseminate. And literally, I went to into the OR one day and it was, it had gotten, I think, over uh, 70,000 likes on Facebook over the weekend. This is like your first post or your that initial photo of you and some of our other colleagues here? Or? Yeah, that photo was actually posted by some plastic surgeons at UC Irvine. Hmm. And they put it on um, one of the you know, pro-Hillary Clinton websites, <laughs> kind of groups, and uh, it would, just went totally viral. And so the following Monday, it was like a week that it had already been out. Not a whole lot happened. I think people were probably trying to take pictures. But when I got out of the OR on Tuesday it had clearly kind of the response had skyrocketed. And then it was Monday night that BuzzFeed News contacted me. When I got out of the OR on Tuesday, CNN had called and the Washington Post, New York Times. And I was, you know, much like Heather, I had no idea what to say to these people. And they completely take what you say out of context. (laughs) And as much as I tried to make this, you know, about, kind of disparities and highlight what Caprice Greenberg does. The um, spin on it was more about just replicating the cover and, you know, oh, surgeons are taking selfies or, you know what I mean? Some of the uh, media tried to just sort of diminish the value, I think, overall. The I look like a surgeon hashtag was posted with pretty much all of the New Yorker cover pictures also because you can look at um, the number of tweets uh, over that time period and the I look like a surgeon way out does the New Yorker cover challenge and Heather was uh, nice enough because she can get a hold of some of those statistics to share that with me Um, and towards the end I think nobody was even using the New Yorker hashtag anymore so I want to hear a little bit more about how you guys have navigated this media world because it's obviously of interest to me as former journalist turned intermittent podcaster but let's talk a little bit about the scope of what we're what we're talking about here like what what kind of metrics when we say like something's gone viral on on facebook or twitter like what what are you guys talking about 
I will, I'll say, I'll let Heather um, talk about the hashtag I look like a surgeon second because she that eclipses what we did with the cover challenge, only that the cover challenge made a huge spike, I think, in the I look like a surgeon and got it kind of being used a lot more again. And it's, I think it's background um, noise level of its use has gone up significantly since then. On Twitter, you can have basically, you can look at how many people have had an impression. So how many people have looked at that tweet, basically, that doesn't mean they necessarily interacted with it. And the last I checked, it was up over 300 million. I'm probably 5,000 or 10,000 of them. <laughs> right. And you're scrolling it past it or whatever. But I mean, we're talking big data here. This is, mm -hmm. these are, these are big numbers. Yeah. And that's just, you know, that's just on Twitter. I mean, the number of people I had send me news articles from around the world or call and say it was on their nightly news or things like that. I don't, there's a lot of, I think, metrics of the spread of something like this that go well beyond just the social media. Um, I don't know how to get Facebook uh, data or Instagram data, but it was, uh, posts were uh, on those sites a lot as well. Yeah, it clearly like escaped the gravity of just casual retweeting, right? Heather, do you have a sense of sort of the scope of I Look Like a Surgeon now? As Dr. Pitt was saying, for the impressions, the website simpler calculates them as users and their followers. So tweets times the number of followers. And I believe that since 2015, we're well over 1 billion impressions with that metric now. Wow. I would agree with Dr. Pitt, that in terms of being involved, you feel like it goes viral when the media outlets start contacting you. And that's the point that you know it's reaching beyond your immediate community. I know when I was at 2015, the Clinical Congress, you know, there's countless surreal moments of all of this, but one of them was meeting a neurosurgeon from, I believe, actually Saudi Arabia, and her telling me how the hashtag affected her in Saudi Arabia. And I can't say it was a life goal or something I thought even possible to affect people's lives in that way you know, before ever meeting them. It's definitely surreal, those moments of you know, meeting the friends from Australia that I've been tweeting with for a couple of years or the Women in Surgery Italia group. So it's, it's very surreal to be this internationally connected from your couch doing 22 hours a day of retweeting, right? It's, it's actually, there's tangible effects around the world. It's amazing. When um, the New Yorker spread, I was amazed sort of at how it spread. So there was actually a bunch from the Middle East early on and a bunch from South America. Um, and then later it started hitting Europe and Northern Europe. Um, Australia was the, kind of tweeting a lot in the beginning, but eventually we got, um, a tweet from China, which I was couldn't believe we got past China's firewall. <laughs> yeah, it was a big thing. Um, and you know, other you know, India, Thailand, you know, a lot of other countries, um, and retweets from pretty much every continent. And so that, like, just the the sheer volume of that, but the number of people that kind of affected or it was affected by was amazing. And to me, the um, similar to Heather the things that were so meaningful were the people who, you know, wrote me, you know, my um, email address is on the internet available and just sent me emails about how much this meant to them or how much it inspired them. I got an email from the young woman in China who was like, I'm going to do surgery now. My father was traveling in the U.S. and saw this and brought it back to her. That was just so wow. amazing. So 
and then it, it hit Africa too. Yeah, how incredible. Yeah, and realizing that we have challenges for women in surgery in the United States and the challenges are very real around the world and oftentimes you know, more significant and yeah, the international moments. I remember interviewing with a German newspaper and everything's happening so quickly and it feels like you're just barely keeping up. And so I had no idea who this German newspaper was or what it was about, but I did the interview in English. And then the next thing I know, an exchange med student from Germany is sending me a Facebook message about how it's the biggest newspaper in Germany and how excited he was to see it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, like, like you said, we, we don't get prepared in surgery to do a lot of press availabilities, right? I mean, it's just not part of our training, like how to manage the press. And I feel like there are a lot of tricks to that, that maybe I picked up because I actually worked in the press and I sort of often see surgeons talking to to the media and I say, oh man, you are taking yourself down a bad road. You sort of had to sound, it sounds like you both sort of learned this on the fly. What advice do you have there? My intuition was to focus on the positive. And so, which I'm very appreciative that it was largely the positive coverage that is what traveled. You know, it's a, it's a difficult message to talk about disparities in surgery and gender bias and things like that. But I do feel that the positive message um, made people more comfortable being associated with it and being included in it. And there's definitely, especially with, you know, I look like a surgeon, the delicate tension between nursing and surgery and the complaints of not being interpreted as, as surgeons and rather as nurses. And, you know, some people like to say, oh, that's a compliment. Still, it's frustrating to not be, which it is. Um, so that, and I think that did get, so there was a tabloid in Australia who took more mm -hmm. of the negative route somewhat, um, mm -hmm. but otherwise it really was largely positively interpreted. And I think that worked well. I didn't, that was, like I say, just my intuition. I have since spoken to some people that are a little bit more media savvy who, you know, trained me on coming up with three points before you talk to the the interviewers just to help you stay on track. And I think that's very helpful advice. I think I was fortunate too in that there were such good intentions of the journalists writing about this, that that was helpful. Yeah. So I think it was a little less nerve wracking as opposed to other things that might be covered by the media where you need to be particularly more strategic and measured. Yeah, sort of a, a universal good, but you, Dr. Pitt, your, your experience was different. Like it sounded like you actually felt like it was hard to initially kind of get, get the news to see it the right, the way you intended it. Yeah, I think it was um, a little difficult because one of the things that happens is you give one interview or quote and other media outlets will either credit who I originally gave it to or it seemed like they share what you say. And so different parts of one interview that I did would come out and they, you know, can use it out of context. And, you know, I think that the main focus of media or, you know, news that I would actually read, you know, CBS News, The New Yorker, New York Times, they were all very positive. And I, I remember seeing like maybe two or three tweets that were even negative about this. I think people, you know, really um, enjoyed it. And I've met plenty of people who remember 
they're like, oh yeah, I saw that picture thing. Um, what was yeah. that about again? But they remember seeing the images because they stick with you so much um, as opposed to, you know, <clears throat> either of the two hashtags. But I think I just felt inexperienced at the time about what to say. And so whenever I could, I actually asked them to just email me the questions and I, you know, wrote them back there. I could edit them. I could have somebody else look at them and make sure what, what, what I wanted to say was what was being conveyed. I also really tried hard to give other people credit throughout this and very little did they ever um, I think the Washington Post was the only person who ever mentioned Dr. Greenberg. You know, they um, really just focused. It would, they would quote me and I'm, you know, I was like, this isn't about me. This is about, you know, something much, much bigger than me. And I didn't go into it expecting to start some, you know, viral, you know, movement that was about gender disparities. I mean, initially I just thought how, how cool is this picture? Um, and, you know, if other people would, you know, retweet it or make their own, that would be really um, neat. But it very quickly got sort of, because I think I used the hashtag, I look like a surgeon, was a, became about uh, gender disparities, which I have a lot of knowledge about with Dr. Greenberg being here. Um, and so I think it was also the timing. And that's one thing that I don't know if everybody's talked about a ton, but the New Yorker challenge was, you know, what, like two months after the Women's March, one of the biggest marches ever in the U.S. history, Hillary Clinton had just won and then lost the national or candidacy, the presidential uh, candidacy. Caprice Greenberg's address at the AAS was one month prior, um, and it was, I think, only two days or three days after Equal Pay Day, and hashtag Equal Pay Day was you know, one of the hashtags. So I think timing wise, it was just sort of building up and just kind of right at that moment. But I had a lot of support from all the people who started the, I look like a surgeon hashtag, you know, including uh, Heather, uh, Marissa Bach, Dr. Kathy Hughes, and Dr. Nikki Stamp. So yeah, I mean, it's, it is remarkable how much of a community it feels like this is generated. And it, it like clearly it's because both of you have taken such efforts to be inclusive and to say, this is not just me telling my story. Look, I look like a surgeon. Look at this picture I took of me in the OR. It's like, send me your photos. And it's been so visual too, right? It's like both of these are photo-driven, sort of visual-driven things. And these, these pictures that tell a thousand words or you know a million stories, which I think is what's been so impressive about it. Like, you now have both of you, I mean, are sort of two dominant voices on, on social media and, and gender equity and surgery. Like, what's next? Where are things headed from here? One thing that hasn't come up yet that I, we'd be remiss not to show appreciation for is the men's support in this. So I would have to say that before the cover challenge came about, there were, it was men that kept sending me that image saying, wow, have you seen this? And it was fascinating how for the artist, it was just something she did because it was something she'd experienced as a child. However, our male colleagues really realized that in their gut, you know, it struck them as different because none of us are used to women being the default image of the surgeon. And really initially there were many men that were very excited to point that out. And then as the cover challenge happened, it was the men that were on the floor in their bunny suits and taking the pictures. 
Thanks to Drew Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He was there when we took the, the initial picture. We were literally, you know, it had been after our gala at the endocrine surgeons meeting. And literally the phone was like on a coffee table with us leaning over it. And he was, you know, there kind of, you know, supporting us during that time. And so he was a big supporter from the men's uh, side, as well as Dr. Tom Bergese, So. And it was Dr. Greenberg's talk that had also largely prompted a lot of that he for she you know, hashtag support with I look like a surgeon. And we really saw that with the cover challenge. Yeah, it seems like that that is sort of maybe the, the new hashtag that we're seeing a lot more of now is the he for she and the sort of the this integrated model, right? Where like it's it's not just women in surgery who are advocating for themselves, it's surgeons advocating for equality in surgery. And I think there's more and more conversation realizing how we all stand to benefit from that equality. Yeah. Which is yeah. something we tried to capture early on that really none of us fit the outdated stereotype of you know someone who spends every waking hour in the operating room who has no life. Mm-hmm. And we really, you know, all benefit from being able to spend time on our own self-care with our families, things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, in addition to sort of this he for she thing, which I think is critical because change has to come from both sides. And, you know, uh, I think Dr. Uh, Kipilamo's address at the ASA meeting uh, was really big because it showed that, you know, the men are listening at, you know, a very high level. Massachusetts General Hospital, they have free childcare. You know, so some of this is, you know, doing things to uh, support work-life balance for women, and then, you know, there's, you know, always mentorship and leadership, but I think there's also needs to be transparency with your salary and, you know, grant reviews, journal reviews, all of these things, I think really need to become blinded because I know that there's, you know, implicit bias just based on institution or country or any of these other things, you know, not just gender. And so I think that one could really help, you know, and as Dr. Logie just mentioned, the you know, there's a huge benefit from having diversity, any program or uh, anywhere. Um, And so that I think is also something that, you know, being inclusive of um, women, but I know the, you know, I look like a surgeon hashtag was really also brought up by or used by anyone who doesn't look like a surgeon, whether it's, you know, someone who's African American or, you know, something, you know, that uh, isn't kind of the typical picture of, you know, the older white male. Theater guys who don't know much about sports, I feel <laughs> like I don't have a lot of like soulmates in surgery, but there's that's a few of us out there. You also, when you mentioned the images, I think that's also important to acknowledge in that there's conversations on, for example, like hashtag slacktivism, that every, anyone mm-hmm. can post that they care about something in a hashtag. But what's been interesting with these movements is that to me, the images are activism. By putting these images out there, we're rewriting unconscious, implicit biases and associations with who are surgeons. And so I think inherently the hashtag is a form of activism in itself and it is accomplishing something in itself. Particularly when it it breaks out from the sort of standard people who are just inherently going to agree with you on Twitter, right? It's like, it's gotten out of the echo chamber. Yeah, and I I totally agree. And I think there's power in sort of seeing the face, you know, for the cover challenge, we were behind masks, but for the hashtag, I look like a surgeon, it was just a picture. 
And I remember posting mine with a couple of the residents um, from where I was at, you know, in a bar just to be like, anyone you can run into, you know, you never know what they're doing kind of behind um, who they are. But when you see those images, I think you can, you know, you picture, oh, my sister could look like that, my mom, you know, my aunt, my cousin, whoever. And so I think that other people, be them uh, either a male or a female, they see that. And I think the faces themselves have power just in the ability of people to kind of identify with that person. Yeah. Both within surgery, right, for for surgeons to sort of recognize, oh, that there is real breadth in our profession. And maybe, like, actually, there's more breadth than I'm seeing in my department. Maybe Mm -hmm. we should change that. And also, right, for, like, the little girls out there who sort of have never thought, like, oh, I could be a surgeon too, right? Actually, I have to say my four-year-old daughter has always loved trains since she was little. And one day she came home saying that only boys can like trains. And... Mm -hmm. I was quite upset. And after Googling, you know, girls love trains, I realized that there's literally a girls love trains hashtag. He and I searched girls love trains on Twitter. And after seeing all these images of little girls playing with trains, it literally changed her mindset that it's okay. Girls can like trains. Yeah. So saw the power of those images in that, in her four-year-old you know, mind and the impressions that she had. Hashtag I look like a conductor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, and then she tells me how she wants to be a a firefighter. And so then we look at, you know, women firefighter images and and there's a women in construction hashtag, another one of her ideas. And it's amazing to see those images. Yeah, that's so fantastic. And on the topic of, you know, racial diversity, I am part of a group of black male physicians putting forth the black men in medicine hashtag. And it's been interesting because people have questioned, you know, the need for that and why not focus on black women, which is a very important, you know, cohort to be supportive of and allies with as well. There's a statistic that I think it was 2014 or 15 that there were actually less black men in medical school than there were in 1974, I believe. Wow. So there's a reason for it being specifically black men in medicine that they're Mm. particularly underrepresented and there may be big differences as we go up in academia and leadership but at the level of medical school there's a very big disparity of underrepresentation of black men and they talk a lot about rewriting the narrative and that these images hopefully help rewrite the images associated with you know black men and the possibilities for them yeah yeah it's nice with 280 characters now we do have more (laughs) to include multiple hashtags compared to previously. Yeah. I was, I was going to say that I've sort of noticed from having been now on Twitter a lot. Um, Cause you know, a lot of both of our movements were very much about surgeons, but there's a huge movement on Twitter just for women in medicine altogether. There's a hashtag women in medicine. There's a women in medicine chat. There's a group of women who have gotten together who are working very strategically to help decrease uh, gender bias. And, you know, our, it's a very multidisciplinary group. For me, it's opened up opportunities to speak places about using social media, you know, and so I've been invited to a few uh, places and going to conferences that are, you know, anesthesia conference or other, um, you know, specialties. And so, you know, I think that 
social media is not being used just by surgeons. I think it's across medicine. Um, and I think that there are a lot of kind of uh, at least data that are showing that it's being used a lot. So, yeah. Well, that's cool that they've, that you've sort of broken through those silo walls too, right? Mm -hmm. That like people are saying, Oh, here's someone who's done this in surgery. Let's, let's bring them to talk to us instead of, you know, reinventing the wheel in our own societies, right? Mm -hmm. Creates more of that leveling of, of all of these barriers that seem to be so much a part of what we do. Yeah. And I think social media isn't convenient for surgeons in particular to be, to have interdisciplinary conversations because it can be asynchronous. So it can be at three in the morning. You know, sometimes at work it's, it's a little tight to have a lot of interdisciplinary conversations or meetings, but um, in the social media sphere, it's a little bit easier sometimes. Right. Absolutely. Both of your work is such a remarkable example of, of the power of individuals to sort of recognize a problem, identify a creative way to fix it. And then, you know, through a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work to really create change on a measurable national and international level. So it's just, I want to thank you both so much for, for joining us to talk about this incredible work. And I'm just so excited to sort of see not just what you do in the future, but, but how it changes the composition of the people that we work with in, in the years to come. So cool. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's been a great pleasure. Next time on The Surgery Set, I speak with Dr. Julie Conyers. She's a general surgeon at Peace Health Ketchikan Medical Center in Ketchikan, Alaska. She joins us to talk about rural surgery and what it's like practicing off the map uh, in rural spots around the United States, how you find resources to do things that are not so easy to do uh, outside of tertiary medical centers and do them really, really well. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at Whisk Surgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.